On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be chatting about Canada's World Cup soccer loss. A couple questions coming out of this one and the tournament itself. First of all, why did Christine Sinclair, one of the greatest goal scorers of all time, not take the penalty kick? And two, what is going on with video-assisted refereeing? It is making a joke of this entire tournament. John McGrain will explain. We're also going to chat about getting your parent or grandparent or someone into the long-term care system in Ontario. Karen Cummings, former CHCH reporter, now someone who's gone through this, will explain what a difficult chore this is to try and make this happen. And we will finish by talking to one of the former jurors from the Bernardo trial. Happened about this time in 1995 about why jurors in Ontario across Canada should have access to psychologists and psychiatrists because sometimes the stuff they see is so horrible they will suffer from PTSD and need help, but right now there is nothing for them. Enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Canada's women, the fifth-ranked team in the world, bounced today from the Women's World Cup. Uh, a hugely disappointing result. This is a team that had designs on going much, much further, maybe even winning this thing. I don't know, that may have been a bit of a stretch, but the semifinals would have been probably a reasonable target at least. As I say, fifth-ranked in the world, but lost to Sweden today. Just the fact that they lost, though, is not why we're going to talk about it this evening. It's some stuff going on around the game, around this game, and around the game that I want to talk about. Now, last week, we had John McGrain came on, joined us for a few minutes, but because we had a technical problem, we only got him for about three minutes. That's not nearly enough for a man of John's grandeur and gravitas, a Hall of Famer in, I don't even know how many Halls of Fame, I say this every time, a, a former Olympian, a soccer, pro soccer player, a builder, uh, he does everything. He joins us now. John, how are you tonight? I'm well, Scott. Nice to hear from you. Uh, let's go through this. Uh, a couple things I want to get to today. First of all, Canada's women lose one nothing. That happens. I mean, teams lose even if they're favored to win. But Canada gets a penalty kick in the second half on a handball. And Christine Sinclair, who I believe at this point is the second most prolific scorer in the history of women's soccer, doesn't take the penalty and instead... Uh, a player who is, I believe, in her first World Cup and a young player who has not had a great tournament to this point, uh, Janine Becky, ends up taking the kick and it's stopped. What's going on? Uh, good question. Uh, I mean, it's it's always easier. I mean, the game is twenty twenty when you, you look at it from the stands or in front of the television. Of course. It's a lot different when you're on the pitch itself, but... Uh, uh, I was a bit stunned when I didn't see her take the penalty uh, for the reasons that you just mentioned. Uh, she has more experience in goal scoring and she's taken many penalties in her in her career. So when I didn't see her going up for that, I was actually quite shocked. And it looked like, you know, young Becky, uh, she never took her eyes off the ball, never looked at the goalkeeper the whole time that she was waiting to take the penalty. She was very nervous. Uh, that being said, it was a great save. But Christine Sinclair, uh, like the young American uh, Rapinoe, who's the team leader for the Americans, took two penalties today and scored both. That should have been uh, Christine Sinclair's uh, responsibility today. Step up in a big situation, put the ball in the back of the net. A number of people uh, mentioned right after this happened that it was very reminiscent to them 
of Wayne Gretzky sitting on the bench in the shootout in the Nagano Olympics for hockey, you've got one of the greatest players of all time. If you're the coach, even if maybe Christine Sinclair at this point in her career is not where she was once upon a time, do you not want to at least go down with your best shot having been taken as opposed to trying to be clever? Well, she's your best player. She's been your best player forever. She scored more goals than anybody. Uh, and the key factor is this. Uh, you're in the quarterfinals of the World Cup. Penalty is about to be taken. We call that squeaky bum time. And that means that <laughs> the nerves are just popping out of your eyeballs. And you want the person who's been there a hundred times to do this. Cool, calm, collected. This is not a big deal. This is Sinclair, Sinclair's ball. She should have insisted. The coach should have made sure that when there's a penalty, I don't care if you don't want to take it, Christine. You're a leader. You take it. But that's, John, what's really interesting about this is after the game, uh, the coach, Canada's coach, who has taken over for John Herdman and probably is going to be under immense fire after this one, uh, he said, you know what, I leave it up to the players who want to take it, and they discuss it among themselves. And when I heard that, again... I was kind of stunned. You're, you are the coach. You're the manager of this team. This is your tournament. This is what you're being paid for. That seems to me like a giant cop-out as a coach to allow that kind of decision to rest with the players. Make that decision and live with it. Well, maybe I'm a dinosaur, uh, and most people think that maybe I am because I've been out of the game a long time. But I don't think the game's changed that much where the coach doesn't sit down in team tactics and spells out exactly who takes the penalties. Uh, you practice it in training. Uh, but to have a person like, like Sinclair, in women's soccer, she would be the same as a Gretzky. She would be the same as a Messi, a Ronaldo, or, or all the great players in the game. When, when the game is down to the line and you're down by a goal, you know, 20 minutes left, and this could tie it up, you want your best player taking that. For not only the reasons that she can put it in the back of the net, but because of the fact it's a very stressful situation, and, and if you've never done this before, you're bound to make mistakes. But how does the coach defer on that decision? That's what I don't get. Well, you know, let, let's face it. I mean, one thing you never do is you never ask a player's opinion on how good the coach is because you get 11 different answers. And what you don't do is uh, taking a penalty is not a democracy. Okay? That's the coach's decision. As you said, that's what he's paid for. He's paid to make these decisions in crucial situations. And you don't get any more crucial than a quarterfinal penalty that will tie mm. the game and maybe take you on to the semifinal of a World Cup. So this is on the coach's shoulder. Got to take a quick break, but we're going to come back with more with John McGrain because I want to talk about VAR, Video Assisted Refereeing, which has proven to be very aggressively ridiculous. And I'm just making these words up on the spot, but man, it is a mess right now. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are talking with John McGrain, soccer legend from this area, about the Women's World Cup. Canada lost today, won nothing to Sweden. I was going to say a big upset, bit of an upset. Canada should have won this. They were ranked more highly. They could have won this. But John, let's leave the Canadian game, at least sort of, because it ties in uh, aside for a bit, because the storyline, I would argue, that has taken over this World Cup is VAR, Video Assisted Refereeing. It's it's available and it's used in men's and women's. It's not exclusive to women's. But boy, this has become such a dominant feature because there have been so many seemingly botched calls and messes and controversies. 
Uh, there was one today in the Canadian women's game, the very end. There was a, uh, what appeared, certainly on replay, to be a handball by Sweden that wasn't reviewed and wasn't called. In the American game earlier today, there was a penalty kick awarded on what looked like it was nothing. Uh, Cameroon, it looks like Cameroon almost lost their minds based on video review. What's going on with this system? Why can it not work, seemingly? Well, I just... You know, as I probably have said in the past, uh, the VAR is supposed to be utilized to assist the referee. It's not supposed to be a tool to referee. Uh, And I think it's being used to referee a game. Explain the difference. The difference is if a referee makes a decision, okay, and let's say it's a penalty kick. In, In my opinion, it should be used in only two instances. Something that happens inside the box, if a referee calls a penalty and is dubious, they can go upstairs and, and review it and see if it was a penalty. They shouldn't be calling penalties from VAR. That's the referee's decision. The second thing is on red cards. If a guy is taking a dive, guy gets a red card and sent off, I think upstairs it should be for those situations. That was a red card. That was a yellow card. Uh but to have the VAR determine what is a penalty and what is not, whether a person is offside by six inches or not, uh, to rule out a goal that was scored five minutes ago and then to go back and review it, I think, as you have just succinctly said, this has been a World Cup of the ridiculous, and it has spoiled what I think to be a good World Cup. There is a very real chance that the United States is out today if there's not for VAR that bails them out with a couple penalty kicks. Uh, whether you want the U.S. in it or not, I mean, I certainly, you know, it's probably better for ratings with FIFA if they're in. I, I'm not suggesting that it was fixed. I don't mean that. But, I mean, it, it, they may have been gone today. Canada, who knows what happens. As I say, the Cameroonian game turned with against England turned into a farce yesterday. It just, John, it, it seems as though the idea behind it is that the theory behind it is let's if as you say if it's a farcical call or a really egregious call let's get a second look at this but it's being used so much to change opinions and the irony is that any review any replay in sports is supposed to give you an objective overview of what happened so you know is the person offside and in hockey whether we like it or not you can see objectively is the person offside even by a centimeter soccer it's not as clear and what you're doing is i think by using this you're instead of adding objectivity you're taking the ref's subjective call and then adding a second subjective call but there's no objectivity being dumped into this anywhere and also killing the flow of the game yep uh I think the best analogy is when you talk about VAR to the ridiculous is the fact that you can call pass interference in the CFL for practically every single play. Mm -hmm. You can call holding on the line in every single play. Yes. So what you've got to do is, is like agreeing with what you just said, is that it has to be egregious. It has to be out of the ordinary. In fact, what I would do is I would give it I would give each coach one coach's challenge to the VAR Mm. and leave it at that and let the game flow and let the mistakes be made because the game is full of mistakes. Well, and I was not even going to ask you about this because, you know, we only have a minute left and I I don't want to cause your blood pressure to go through the roof, but in the Scotland game, (laughs) 
the, the Scottish goalie got called based on VAR for leaving the goal line on a penalty, and she was about six inches off the line. And I wrote this in my column Saturday. I went and watched about 25 minutes of YouTube penalty kick highlights. John, I could not find a single one where the goalie was actually on the line as prescribed Correct. by this. It never happens, and here you now have a game turn on this. It's, it's, it's wrong. Uh, the game is supposed to be... The game is supposed to be full of mistakes because that's what makes it interesting. Uh, you know, if you had an umpire, if you took the umpire to baseball and made it machine, and they've got technology to do that, to call balls and strikes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so- somehow the excitement of the game and what gets your blood boiling and sometimes makes you happy is some of the mistakes that are within the game that are lost. That's where the discussion around the table. It's not supposed to be a game based on perfection. It's supposed to be a game based on imperfection. But again, egregious situations. It should be an assist to the referee instead of being a replacement for the referee, which it is right now. Always love having you on, John McGrain. Thank you for your time this evening. Thanks for doing this. Always my pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. On the weekend, my wife and I were with my father-in-law looking around, contemplating taking a look at some places for someday 80 years old. He turned 80 recently and he's got a few little health problems and trying to make some plans about what's going to be the, the place where he's going to live at some point. If that moment comes, if that time comes when he's going to need some help with that. Well, got me thinking that back around mother's day, my next guest wrote a piece about navigating the long-term care system in this province. It was a terrific piece. It was in the spec. It was in a variety of other newspapers around. Uh, The headline was, Our Mom's Long-Term Care Journey Was a Long and Winding Road That Was Exhausting at Every Turn. And that pretty much sums up what the piece was, although that's not all it says. It was, we'll we'll go into it. Uh, But the writer of that piece is Karen Cumming. You know her from CHCH Once Upon a Time and, and from... Maybe, possibly, I don't know where it stands right now, going to Mars someday with that Mars program. Let me bring Karen in here. We'll find out about Mars first, and then we'll go on to this. Where is the Mars program? Well, um, uh, thank you for asking. It's, uh, it's, um, I'm going to say it's, it's, um, it's, it's in a holding pattern for the moment. <laughs> okay. the, uh, uh, the, uh, the CEO of the Mars One mission is, uh, and he has been for the last number of years, he's looking for investors. And as you can imagine, uh, it's a little tougher than you might imagine to find people who are willing to dig deep into their pockets and be willing to lose their money if it all explodes in the air. So uh, we're all waiting on on, uh, the edge of our seats for for news, and uh, we're hoping that at some point soon things will actually move forward. Well, and I hope your turn of phrase there was only a Freudian slip because we... (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) let us go to this. Uh, And if you're wondering what that was all about, there is a program, and Karen was one of the finalists to be considered for that program that she had volunteered for. So uh, let us go to this, though, Karen, because this is a... uh, It's one of those stories that I don't think... I think what makes this so difficult and so challenging challenging is a couple things. But first off, I don't think too many people want to think about this. I don't think too many people want to think about either dumping or putting, and it could be either one, their parents into a place like this, or even contemplating what they would do when they get to that point. Uh, I think you're right. I, th- I think at the, at, the, um, at the base of it is fear. Um, you know, nobody wants to confront the elephant in the room. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, nobody wants to, to think about the possibility of having to go to a place that's going to be your last home on Earth. 
but I, I really uh, would like to congratulate you and your family for being proactive and for actually starting to consider and uh, possibly book some tours in some of these places, because really that, that's what it, it is all about, is being proactive and being prepared. And that was the biggest reason that I wanted to write the story about our mom, uh, because I wanted to help other families who uh, quite literally won't know what they don't know until they're in the middle of it. Well, and to be fair, I'll happily take any compliment I get, but I don't want to take too much on this one because there have been a couple little health things that have got us. We're not doing this in in isolation, in a vacuum. There has been something that has prompted this, but the problem, I guess, with a lot of the people who will find themselves in this position is something will come up very suddenly, and now you have to very quickly find something you're going to do about this, and you haven't done any preparation, and now you've got to make a decision really fast. And that was exactly what happened uh, in our mother's case. Um, You know, all of a sudden, our mom was in a crisis situation. She was uh, unable to walk and living in an assistant uh, living facility. And once you are unable to walk in a place like that, you can no longer stay there. So uh, that's when the folks from the Lynn come and visit you. And um, the idea is to get you on what they call the crisis list. Uh, And uh, much to our amazement, uh, we were told that it was completely up to us to go and tour these places to uh, be able to compile a list that we would be happy with. The thing is that nobody in the Lynn, none of the caseworkers, have any kind of a, a portfolio of photographs or videos that they can show you of these places. There are 86 uh, long-term care facilities in the Hamilton, Niagara, Haldeman, Brant, uh, Lynn, and um, they'll, they'll look you straight in the eye and tell you that it's your job to go and check them out. And I can tell you this, that when you're in the middle of a crisis situation, the last thing that you're equipped to do is start booking tours and going out to to look at these places. It was uh, completely overwhelming for my family and I. And would I be fair in guessing that they're not all equal? Uh, Exactly. Um, They're not all equal. And the thing is, you know, your parent has likely never seen the inside of any of these places. You've likely never seen the inside of any of them. Uh, In the end, if you're lucky enough to know somebody who works in the long-term care uh, industry, they might be able to give you a bit of a heads up as to which are the nicer ones and which are not. But otherwise, you're pretty much flying blind. And I can tell you that that is a scary feeling, especially when you're dealing with uh, you know, your beloved mother or father. And so you you now are in this position where you've got to find some place in a hurry. You go and look around, did you say 86? There are eight, there are a total of 86 okay, so you go you, online. So you go and start looking at some of them and presumably you're going to want to find one that's sort of near where you are, not throw them up in Thunder Bay or Sault Ste. Marie or something unless right. they're from there. But there's no guarantee there's going to be a spot available in the ones that you like or are close to you. Exactly. And that's what I really feel strongly that people need to understand. There are no guarantees that you are going to get your first choice. There are no guarantees that you're going to get a facility that's close to where you live. Uh, You may be driving an hour each way in the car every day to go visit your mom and dad. And, you know, all of that doesn't sound so bad until you're in the middle of doing it. And then you realize that, you know, surely there must be a better way for people to be able to navigate all of this. 
You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chatting with Karen Cumming. You know her probably if you've been around these parts for any period of time as a former reporter on CHCH. She's still a journalist. She's also, you may know her, we were talking about it a moment ago, as someone who will be going to Mars and the Mars One mission if that ever gets off the ground, no pun intended. Uh, but we are talking about long-term care, the long-term care program in this province and how difficult, frustrating, challenging it is. Karen's mother had just had to go through it, had to find her way into this system. And Karen, we were just before the break talking about some of the challenges of this, but let's go through what the process is of this because you 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 get your... Uh, your parent, your grandparent, whomever, who now suddenly needs to find a place. What do you do? What What is the process you have to go through to try and get a place? Well, that's when a caseworker from the Lynn will come over to visit you and your parents, and they will do an assessment to determine whether or not they actually are in what they would call a, a crisis situation. And if you are deemed to be in crisis, you go to the top of the list, to the top of the waiting list for any of the places that you have on the list. But then the, um, uh, the process begins. Unfortunately, you have to wait until someone passes away uh, so that a bed opens up. A little ghoulish. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, but that's really sort of only when the, the, the whole journey begins, because once that happens, you have 24 hours to either accept that bed or to decline it. Um, if you accept it, you have five days in which to move in um, to the long-term care facility. If for any reason you decline it, guess what? Uh, you are removed from the waiting list for uh, any of the places you've chosen for three months. That's the way it is. If you don't like what you've been offered, they take you completely off the list, and three months later you have to start all over again with brand new paperwork um, put together your, your waiting list choices again and, and wait. So it can be a very time-consuming process. Um, uh, now, they will tell you that once you do accept a bed, if it's not your first choice, they'll tell you that there's every opportunity down the road that you might be able to move into your first choice. But the trouble is, once you've moved into a facility, you are no longer considered to be a crisis case. And it's the crisis cases that, that move to the top of the list. Chicken and egg, of course, yeah. Right. So you could wait literally for years before you might have the opportunity to move into your first choice. What about, and, you so you, you've put down on this list then, when this happens, you put down your choices. Do they only consider you for one of these choices? Or if somewhere else comes up, do they say, we've got a place here as well? No, I mean, it, it was our experience that you had to uh, give them a list of choices, and we actually gave them 10, which was quite a few, um, and you're waiting for a bed to, to come open in one of those 10. Now, will you get the first choice? Will you get the 10th choice? Um, that's where the crapshoot comes in, because you have no idea. It, um, it's kismet. You know, wherever the wheel lands um, is where you will have to go if you need a place. And my mom was in a situation where she, she needed a place immediately because she couldn't walk. So, um, you know, we were very fortunate. We, um, uh, we uh, got, uh, you know, one of our choices that was up there on the list. It was a lovely place. The, the people who worked there were absolute angels. But I guess what I'm, I'm trying to um, uh, get out there to people is that it doesn't always end well unless you are prepared and you are proactive and you do the work. Um, I, 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 what I'm hoping is that the experience that we had 
will um, uh, act as, uh, you know, something that will encourage people to start thinking about it. I know it's not a pleasant thing, but um, trust me, when you're in the middle of the situation, you will be so grateful that you did do your homework, that you did, um, you know, take some tours, that you did, that you are prepared uh, and you have an actual idea of what these places are like. Karen, one of the big problems, though, is going to be, I would think, for a lot of people, unless you are wildly independently wealthy, uh, you may still be living in your own home. Your parent, you are going to need the money from the sale of that home to pay because these places aren't all cheap. So how do you... It, it, now you're in a huge rush and, a, and, a, and an urgency to sell the home as well. Well, exactly. And, you know, fortunately, my mother wasn't in that situation because she was coming directly from an assisted living facility. But, you know, everything you say is true. It, there's even more of a, of a sense of urgency if there's a family home involved and that it, it has to be sold in order to pay uh, the monthly fees. And what are the fees? Give me an idea what the fees would be for a place. Sure, yeah. Well, the good news is that the fees are standardized. So if you go to the Lynn website, you'll be able to find all of the, the numbers that you need to crunch. Our mom was um, somewhat fortunate in that the home that she was living in was slightly older than some of the rest, so she paid a little bit less. Uh, but her monthly fee was just over $2,400 a month. And, you know, you compare that to uh, a private long-term care facility where you could be paying, you know, six, seven, eight thousand dollars a month. It's, um, it's a very different way to go, but it's a way to go that many, many people uh, are going to be using in the years to come. And, um, you know, the, the time to start preparing is now. I have 10 seconds, but does anybody do this for themselves in your experience or is it always when they suddenly run into an emergency and it's their kids or their grandkids? I think maybe people who are um, for example, let's say you're a nurse or um, you've worked in the long-term care field yourself and you understand what's at stake and you understand what needs to be done. I think maybe those people might be extremely proactive. So they might put their, their parent on a waiting list years before they might ever mm. need it just to be safe. But as for the rest of us, you know, it's a, it's a brave new world that not, not many of us know very much about. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd just like to put it out there again. Uh, be proactive. Start preparing. Start researching. Start talking to your friends who've already been doing uh, that and compare notes with them. And, um, you know, la- last uh, but not least, please don't settle for less than what you really want. That would be the best advice that I could offer. Karen Cumming, thanks for the time. Always appreciate it. Thanks so much, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you're old enough to have been following the news in the summer of 1995, around this time in 1995, you absolutely remember the Paul Bernardo trial because it was unlike things, it was unlike anything that I think anyone remembered before. It was stunning. It was terrifying. It was shocking. It was horrifying. It was, pick your word, it was all of those things. And that was just to those of us who were observing this through the prism of the words and explanations of the media who were covering it. Because don't forget, there were no TV cameras in the courtroom. There was no Facebook, no Instagram, no Twitter. It was just the words of the reporters who were sharing it. And they did it very, very well. But a number of people saw this case, this trial up in a different way, much closer than that. The lawyers, the judge, the court staff, and the jury, they did not get to have it crystallized and watered down and somewhat sanitized. They got the raw, uncensored, true 
really horrifying view of the evidence. And you start to think about that and you think, I wonder what that does to someone who didn't sign up for this, but someone who now has to sit there and hear all this and see all this and understand all this. Well, Tina Danzer was one of those jurors. Today, as she has for a number of years now, she is arguing and lobbying for better treatment of jurors who suffer post-traumatic stress disorder after some of these trials. She joins us now. Tina, thanks for doing this today. No problem. Nice to be on. I remember very vividly following that trial in the newspaper, pages and pages and pages every day of the reports, and there was one thing that always stood out to me above everything else, and that was the part when they started playing the videos in the courtroom of some of the things that had happened, and the reporters and the witnesses, not the witnesses, but the spectators in the court, they could hear the audio, but they could only hear the audio. You were having to watch this. Does that ever go away? Let's be honest, it's 24 years later, and so those images in my mind have dimmed greatly. Um, but it, it, if I think about it, it's still there, but not as vivid as it once was. That was that whole feeling when, you know, the people in the courtroom, they, they could only hear the audio. We were watching on a monitor. The monitor was right inside the jury box in front of us. And so you had this entire courtroom of people watching us watching those videos. Mm. It was you were kind of in this fishbowl and you you couldn't look away because of course then somebody would probably say, Well, hey, juror number one wasn't paying attention. So you know what, maybe we're gonna call a mistrial or maybe we need to do this again or so you felt this you you ha- you were compelled to watch even though you didn't want to. You rather look away. Are you in any way uh, at that time, and, and we're going to get to all the PTSD stuff, but we have to set this up because, for I, I mean, again, it, it's such a horrifying thought. And uh, Could you be in any way prepared for what you were going to see? Did they, do they, at the time before this starts, do they give you any kind of warning or anything? Can they do anything or are you just, they turn it on and it's there? You, you know, it's, it's, so when I was first selected, I was 35 at the time. I was a grown woman. Um, and the judge said, you know, there will be some disturbing evidence. I'm going, well, you know, I'm a grown-up. I think I can manage to handle this. In no way did I know what was coming. And, you know, I, I'm a I'm a crime drama junkie. I love law and order and all that sort of stuff. And no matter how much you watch those kinds of things on television, it, it, this just was... Over so overwhelmingly horrible to to see it, it, it was incredible. I, I I honestly don't even know what the rules are at this point, and I don't want to ask you to tell me something that you're not allowed to talk about, even still. But do you remember the reaction among the other jurors after, say, the first day when the first videos were shown and you all were together by yourself? Do you remember it? Was it absolute stony silence? Was it? Cry. Do you remember what and what the reaction was at all? I, you know, I don't. I just can remember that I was so I I was numb. It was like I walked around in this fog. I'm not sure how I got home. Um, I, I I I honestly can't remember. Um, every time we watched those videos, it was like I was walking around in this fog in my brain, and I it was as if you were like on drugs 
that kind of puts you in this mind-numbing space. And you mentioned a moment ago, you had to watch it. It's not like a horror movie where you can turn it off or cover your eyes or something. You had to. So how did you deal no, with that then? How do you force not, yourself to? That's the, that's, that was the hardest part. And the thing was, you know, there wasn't just one video. There was numerous videos. And you had to watch them over and over and over again. And it was this, so you sat in this jury box and you're watching these girls being raped and tortured, but you couldn't do anything about it. And it was just, you know, it caused me um, heart palpitations, anxiety. Uh, it was it was really a difficult period to, to watch those videos because, again, you, you didn't just have to watch it one time. There wasn't just one. There was lots of them. And you had to watch them over and over. I'm not sure why the court would stipulate you have to watch it more than once, but then they would be talking about a different point in law or something, and then they'd say, okay, well, we're going to show it again. So it was, yeah. And, and as a human, as someone who is going to be affected by this, do you just, at that time, do you just bury it? Somewhere deep inside, do you just sort of, you say you're numb, do you just bury it and try and get on with whatever? I think you do. You know, I come from that old school kind of pull up your boots and get on with it. And so I kind of just like I would go home. But now, like when I look back, like I realize I- I'm not sure how I got home. And mm. when I did get home, I wasn't really functioning. My husband was very good. He right at the beginning, he said he would not watch any of the coverages and he would not read any of the newspapers so that he would not then feel like he wanted to ask me anything because he knew I couldn't tell him. So basically, he just took it upon himself to take care of me. So I would come home and he would just kind of put me on the couch and cover me up and make me some tea. And and he kind of looked after everything at home because I really, like now I look back on it, I really wasn't functioning. Well, and you just described, I think, for a lot of people, what would be, well, worst case scenario. I mean, in this case, there were a million worst case scenarios, but where you're not supposed to talk with other jurors about the case, so you can't really discuss it. And then you go home and you can't talk to anyone else. And you're seeing this thing that you don't know, I'm guessing, really how to process. And there's nobody you can talk about it with. Exactly. So what do you do? And so, you know, I had nightmares. I was afraid to go outside in the dark by myself. Uh, I, yeah, and you kind of just go, all right. Now, I mean, I was extremely lucky in the fact that Judge Lesage, who was the sitting judge on the case, recognized the trauma that people were going through. And, you know, he went to the courts and said, these people need some kind of help. And so it was offered to us. And I just thought that was automatic back then. Mm. I didn't realize until not that long ago is that this is really something that the judge has to ask for. But you, if I understand correctly from reading this, you were having not only emotional but physical reactions to this as well at that time. Oh, definitely. Like, I remember one day sitting in the court and I had to put up my hand and ask for a recess because my heart was beating so fast I thought I was going to have a heart attack. And I, I phoned my doctor and, I, like I said, you know, I was on this trial 
I didn't say anything else. And I said, you know, what was happening? And she says, okay, just, you know, you need to take a bit of time. It's, it's anxiety and that you're suffering from anxiety. And, but then again, what do you say? Then you just got to take, take a recess and, you know, half an hour later, you go back in there and start over again. Do you think most people, well, first of all, do you know if any, anyone else on the jury sought help or, or were you alone in that? Uh, I'm pretty sure that probably all of them did. I didn't, you know, again, we didn't talk about it. Uh, it was offered up to us. And so I took it, um, you know, and way back 24 years ago when somebody, when the psychologist mentioned the word PTSD, I had no idea what that was. It wasn't very well known back then like it is now with first responders and, and you know, police officers and ambulance people. And, and, you know, as I said a moment ago, the, the, one of the things that's so difficult about this is um, this is entirely not your choice. You get called to be on a jury. Uh, you are not some, not that this makes it any better, but you're not some weird sexual deviant who goes out looking for this stuff, that you're a normal person and this is now foisted upon you. What do you do with it? I mean, it becomes an impossible thing to see stuff like this and have it not affect you, I would think. Well, exactly. And, you know, the, the point so. I'm a first-generation immigrant to this country. I am very lucky to live here. I have my family has has a very good life here in Canada, and I believe in this country and I believe in the justice system. And so, as a citizen of this country, I feel it is my duty to serve, but not at the expense of my own mental health. And so, I was lucky enough to get some therapy after this trial, and but everybody should be entitled to this. There's the, you know, mental health aspects are really just one of the changes we'd like to make in the jury system. There's also, if you think about concentration, so uh, employers legally have to keep your job for you. They don't have to pay you a salary, which means that the jury pool becomes quite small it's really only large corporations that can afford this. But if they have somebody who is out for a long time and then requires counseling, well, even as an employee of a large corporation, you only have so many benefit dollars to your advantage. So what happens when you need more? Is this out of your own pocket? Um, you know, what about, so if there's senior people that, uh, you know, how do they get there and back and who pays for that? There, there's a lot of things that really need to change in the system to make it better all around for everybody. And you you had the option because Judge Le, Justice Lesage made it available. Uh, and even then, I mean, how many years afterwards or months or I don't know what the period of time would be, were you carrying this around as a heavy weight on you that it was still it was still there? How long did that last? Oh, I'd say a long time. And, you know, even it's now 24 years later, but every time there's something in the news about, you know, Paul Bernardo is seeking parole, it makes my heart beat faster. Mm. You know, hearing about Carla Hamolka and, you know, working in her kid's school, I just about go ballistic thinking, oh, my God, you know, how can this person be out there with other people's children? And so those things, really bring it all back to me all the time. I mean, now time time is a great healer. Um, so it's, it's really those moments 
now that bring it back to me. Other than that, I'm pretty good. But Tina, you know, it's funny because there are some people I'm sure who would at the very beginning of this conversation said, come on, really PTSD? I mean, that's what you get when you're in war or something else. But I'm no expert in PTSD, but one of the things that I understand about it is there are things that will take you back to that and cause the same anxiety. And what you just described sounds exactly like that. Correct. And PTSD is, is generally caused by repeated um, interactions in a certain uh, incident. And that was, it was the videos that we had to watch not once, but twice, but, you know, seven, eight times each. And I think that's what really, really set it in stone, the PTSD. You know, would I have reacted the same if I only had to watch it once or only had to watch one video? I'm not a psychiatrist. I can't tell you. I I think would it have affected me? Certainly. But not to this extent of the amount of time we had to spend watching those videos. You mentioned Carla Homolka and the fact that she is out, and you mentioned that we about the helping at her children's school and everything. Has it ever crossed your mind what we, what would happen if you ever crossed paths with her or saw her or if there was something? Because I would imagine you're not. It's obviously not anywhere close to the same as the victims' families, but you're a victim in a different way by the sounds of it. Have you? Has it ever dawned on you that I just do not want that to happen? Oh, definitely, definitely. I, I, I yes. I would never want that to happen. I'm not quite sure how, what my reaction would be. I'm not a physically violent person. So I don't think I'd probably smack her, but I I would probably like to yell at her and call her some ugly name. But again, you know, as far as, as the law is concerned, she's paid her price and She's allowed to live as a free citizen in this country. But if, but for the victims' families, and again, to distinguish, there is a distinction here. Th- th- their reaction, everybody would see them as a victim. I don't know how many people, until hearing you talk, I don't know how many people would think of the people on the jury as also being victims of this. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't really think people think of it. They think that this is your duty to do. This is a job you take on, and... And so you do it, and then you just walk away. I mean, I believe that uh, counseling was provided for everyone that was in the courtroom, like as court reporters, um, the Crown, all of those people, for the judge, for, for the entire courtroom. And I, I guess, you know, not spectators, but people who work, worked in the media, I'm, I'm guessing that, you know, those media corporations would have provided they did some yep sort they of did mental health care for their employees right should there be okay so we only have a couple minutes left but do you, you obviously believe there should be some kind of standardized care or option available then for jurors especially in difficult cases definitely definitely it should be just you know you and it's not just afterwards it's that so those days when i had those heart palpitations if there was just Someone, someone who worked for the court, you know, that was housed in an office and was sworn in and that you could drop by and say, you know, Dr. So-and-so, today is really, really a bad day. I'm not functioning. I'm not sure how I'm going to get home. And they could say, well, let's sit down and talk for a few minutes and let me help you a little bit. Um, So it's not just post-trial, but during the trial, if there was somebody available. But it has, I think it has to be the same all across the board. But because right now... Federally, every province is different. And because it would have to, it's an interesting idea you bring up, it would have to be someone who's employed by the court 
because right now, by law, you're not permitted to talk to anybody about what happens in the jury room. Correct. Which, you know, I mean, you can even, I don't even know if like a priest or someone, if you're allowed to say anything to them What by law. I'm not really sure how it works, but boy, it seems like that is a, yes. a, a gap in the system that you, you're allowed to talk to someone, but not about the thing that's actually bothering you. Exactly. So I, I, you know, if there was someone, you know, if they knew, oh my God, this is this is going to be a really bad trial. Let's appoint a court-appointed psychologist, psychiatrist to be here on staff for these twelve people and the court reporter and the people who work in the courthouse, you know, and and so that they can get through this and walk away without being damaged. Tina, I understand there was a private member's bill that was going through the House of Commons and it got to the Senate this week or last week and yes. died in the Senate. Do you know why it died there? I think they were just all itching to get out on holiday, personally. <laughs> well, that's not a good reason. <laughs> it's not a good reason, but, you know. Are you still there, Tina? Oh, we may have lost Tina. You know what? We will... Um, We'll let her, you know what we'll cut it there. I'll, I will let her. Uh, I'll, I'll let her know afterwards. Jacob, you can or Ben. Jacob, who's Jacob? Uh, I'll let Ben uh, get in touch with her and thank her for her time. It's a. I don't know in Canadian law if there would be in Canadian the Canadian justice system if there would have been a more difficult trial to have been on with the stuff that they had to see. And so obviously, unquestionably, this is if not the worst case scenario, certainly among the worst case scenarios. Not every trial you are going to see the kind of things that Tina did see in the Bernardo trial. That said, there are a lot of other cases that you do see and hear and are exposed to a lot of stuff that, as I said a moment ago, if you're on a jury, it's not because you're some sort of weirdo who gets off on following the stuff that you're going to hear in court. You're an ordinary average person who has been brought in as part of your civic duty. Presumably, this is contrary to everything you see in your life. You are going to see things that you normally would not look for, would not be exposed to, and would certainly not enjoy. So to not have any opportunity to speak to anybody about the things that are causing you this kind of distress, boy, it, it does seem like there is a chasmic gap in the system that could be relatively easily plugged, I would think. I would think. I mean, if you have a, it could be, you would think a still a private psychologist or private psychiatrist who for the span of that time period was sworn in under the same rules that the jury would be sworn in under, that they can't talk about it. They're just an additional person there that can be talked to. It, boy, that seems to make a lot of sense, doesn't it? Does, I mean, does it not? It makes a lot of sense to me. And if we can then have jurors who walk away at the end of trials who are not damaged, well, that's a better system than apparently what we have. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.